Good morning. Gosh, I always love a chance to be up here with you in Cedar Falls, so thank you so much for inviting me. The last time that I taught, I asked if we could take a look at the Gospels in a different way, as if they were an invitation, invitation to get to know the real Jesus and not the Jesus distorted by this world. And I challenged all of us to keep opening that gospel invitation for ourselves and then to join in as we do that together this summer. And we are doing that by looking at questions Jesus asked. Why did he ask these questions? What are we supposed to learn from them? What answer was he looking for? And what if Jesus asked those questions to you and me this morning? So for this series, I challenged myself to look at a question that I have never talked about. In fact, I've rarely thought about it. I've kind of treated this as a throwaway question at the beginning of a much more famous story that most of us have heard or read many times. But I've come to believe it's an amazing question. And I think that Jesus is asking every one of us who reads this gospel story to answer it for ourselves. And it really has some good things to teach us. But before we get to it, I wanna take a few minutes to remind us of some things we already know about Jesus from some other texts and to get us up to speed of exactly where we are in Jesus's story when we, uh, so we're all on the same page when we get to it, okay? So Jesus, according to all the gospel writers, came to serve and not to be served. The writer Mark records Jesus' own words in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew's biography, this again is Jesus' own words. In chapter 20, he says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, but whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man, just as Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the Gospel of John in chapter 13, we have the story of Jesus getting down and washing his disciples' dirty, disgusting feet. And in all four Gospels, we have the ultimate act of service, Jesus humbling himself to die on a cross for us, for the sins that we commit every day. He did not come to be waited on. He came to be a servant. And we know this both by his recorded words and his recorded actions by all four gospel writers. So I want you to have this in your mind when we get to our question, okay? That Jesus came to serve and not to be served. And as we come to our story, Jesus has already been tested in the wilderness. He's chosen his inner group of disciples. He's turned water into wine. And he has visited with Nicodemus at night where he revealed the good news that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. So Jesus is well into his ministry when he finds himself sitting alone by the well of Jacob in the middle of the day. He has sent his friends to town to get food, maybe because he just needed some peace and quiet from all of their questions, or maybe because he was waiting to have an encounter with the next person that would be at the well, because Jesus is always meeting people where they are. Maybe today, Jesus is waiting to meet you. So now I've heard a lot of discussion about this person that Jesus meets while he's sitting at the well. She's known to us 
as the Samaritan woman, or simply as the woman at the well. She's had five husbands. And she's now living with a man who is not her husband. And over the centuries, much has been argued about if this woman was immoral, or just unlucky, or just on hard times. Whether or not she was in the, at the well in the heat of the day, because she was not allowed to go in the cool of the morning when decent people went, or if she just happened to run out of water at noon, or something divine drew her there. We don't really know. It doesn't matter for our purposes today because whatever the exact true story is, clearly she's had a tough life. She's had five husbands. And there is no story I can weave in my mind that makes that easy. She's about to have a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus. So she comes to the well where Jesus is sitting, and he opens the conversation with one of the most brilliant and compassionate questions I can imagine him asking. Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? The woman is stunned. She feels unworthy to do even that. She's had this hard life, whether she has loose morals or she's just unlucky. She is, in fact, a woman, and that automatically puts her in a lower social status, and she's a Samaritan with whom Jews like Jesus did not associate. She is hot and tired, and her work for the day is not over because, at the very least, she has to haul water back to town. And since it's only noon, I'm going to guess it's probably not for a long, hot, relaxing bath. I can imagine how she looks and feels in the heat of the middle of her workday. And she's not expecting to run into anyone at the well at noon. It's like when you realize that you need something at the grocery store 10 minutes before it closes, and you just got done mowing the lawn, and you are covered in grass and dirt. There's a smudge on your face. Your hair looks awful. and. Wow, do you stink. And you know what? You're hoping you can run into the store really quick without anyone noticing you, without seeing anyone that you know. And I think that she's hoping to go unnoticed, but she sees Jesus, and he sees her. He really sees her, and he says, will you give me a drink? Now, she responds with her own question. It's born out of her own feelings of unworthiness. How can you ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan. You shouldn't even be talking to me. I'm not even good enough for you to speak to, let alone for me to help you. And what about Jesus, this God who came to serve? We just looked at all of those verses. Shouldn't he be getting her a drink? Shouldn't, isn't that what we would expect from our Jesus, right? That he would help her, that he would serve her, help her draw the water? And does he really need help anyway? I mean, he already turned water into wine. I think he can figure out how to provide his own drink. What do you think is going on at the beginning of this conversation? Why this question? Will you give me a drink? He could have said anything. Why is he asking this? I wasn't being sarcastic when I said this question was so brilliant and compassionate, because sometimes asking for help is the most compassionate and loving thing we do. So let's talk this through. Let's see what Jesus was up to and 
what this question and the rest of this story have for us today. So I wanna first share a story about the significance of asking someone to help you, especially someone of a lower status. And I honestly think this is my earliest memory. I had forgotten all about it until I was sitting and pondering one day, Jesus, why did you ask this question? Why did you ask this question? And then this remembrance came to me. When I was little, my dad hunted. He hunted mostly pheasants and small game, and I knew this was something he did to help provide for our family. Now, I have never liked the taste of pheasant, so yes, I have had it fixed a million ways. I know someone is gonna come up to me afterwards and say, if you just fix it this way, you like it. I'm sorry, I just don't. But I ate it because my dad provided it, right? And I thought, if he liked it, so should I. Because like all little kids, I thought my dad knew everything. My dad reloaded his own shotgun shells in our basement, and I used to sit and watch him. And when I was about four or maybe five years old, he surprised me by asking me to help him. I couldn't believe it. I felt so important. The job mattered to our family. It helped feed us, and I knew they had to be done right because I'd seen my dad reject some shells before. And at first, all I did was put in the wads. So the wad is a part of a shotgun shell that separates the shot from the powder, okay? But after I did that for a while, he started to let me pull the arm of the loading machine in order to crimp the shells closed. And I can remember that I had to pull with all of my four-year-old might to get that shell closed. Being asked to do that job by someone so important to me made me feel valuable needed, like I had something to contribute to our family. And my dad did that type of thing my whole life. Steph, we need a new roof. Help me cut the starter strips. Help me pound the nails. Make sure you're coming level to the chalk line. I was maybe 12 years old. It would have been faster and easier for him to do these things for himself and to leave me out of it. But now I know it was deliberate. It was how he instilled self-confidence and worth and a place in our family into me. I knew that my dad didn't just see me as someone who needed taken care of. And he saw me as more than just someone he loved. He saw me as a valuable contributing part of our family, and he wanted to spend time with me. And in the same way, Jesus sees this woman, a low member of society, and he asks her to do something that he could have done for himself, or he could have waited for someone else to do. And she suddenly has value, a purpose. Even if it's only drawing some water, it feels good to be needed and to be seen. And it gave them reason to spend time together. And asking her to do this one thing gave her confidence to do so much more, as we will see a little later in her story. So I wanna pause here and I wanna talk about this idea of asking for help because I know that some of us, me included, need to hear this. Jesus came to serve, and he did. There is no doubt. But there are several times when he asked for help as well. This is one example. But he also asked his friends to stay awake and pray with him when he was about to be arrested and crucified. He asked John to take care of his mother. He asked Peter to feed his sheep. In today's story, he has sent his disciples into town to try to get food. 
Why? If it's Christ-like to serve, why is he asking for help? What does Christ know about that? Well, he knows that you make the other person realize they are valuable to you. You give them more purpose. You allow them to serve, which gives them a chance to be Christ-like. And you automatically deepen your relationship. There's just something about working together or humbling yourself enough to ask someone to help you that makes your relationship deepen more quickly. Think about how fast bonding with each other happens when we do a service mission trip, like to God's Mountain or to Haiti. The first time that my husband, then my boyfriend, met my grandpa, grandpa was unloading a truckload of firewood at our place. And he shook Todd's hand and said, start hauling some wood for me, would ya? And by the end of that afternoon, Todd is drenched in sweat. They are very good friends. And my grandpa walks over to me and says, he's a keeper. <laughs> I have a deep friendship with Kenny and Stuart and Jeff and Aaron and others whom I get to work with on Habitat, even though I have no idea where they live or what their birthday is. Because working together helping each other while we sweat and laugh together for a purpose. It creates something special almost right away. So if you learn nothing else from this question today, nothing else, will you give me a drink? Please learn this. In your families, in your workplace, in your ministry, in your friendships, don't think that you need to be the one and only servant all the time. We think that sort of martyrdom is Christ-like, but it's not. It's not because Christ asked for help. And this simple lesson is so easy to overlook in our hurry to get to the rest of this story. But don't. You want to raise confident kids? Do for them, sure, but ask them to do for you. You want a workplace with a high level of teamwork and respect? Of course, be a servant leader the way that Christ taught us to be, but also ask your coworkers for help. You want a thriving ministry in a church? Lead and serve, but also ask for help with a personal ask. See them the way Christ saw this woman and acknowledge their individual value. Look, thinking that you should do everything yourself. It's not Christ-like. Because Christ didn't do that. So for those who needed to hear that, I hope you did. All right, let's get back to our story. Jesus has asked for a drink, and our woman has hesitated. She's skeptical. How can you ask me for a drink? And now Jesus is about to make this even more unbelievable to her because he's about to reveal that he's just not any Jewish man. He's just not any old dad looking to make his daughter feel important. He is the Messiah. So listen to what happens. This is in John 4, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Woman, if only you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink unlike anything you've ever had before. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, 
welling up to eternal life. Now, our friend's not stupid, right? You'd do the same thing. She asked for a drink of this water that will give her eternity. And they have more conversation about her life. And Jesus confirms, in fact, yes, I know that you've had five husbands. And I know that you're living with someone now who's not your husband. The woman's so amazed that he knows all about her, she calls him a prophet. And then they get to have more conversation. They're spending more time together. And she asks about the coming Messiah, the Christ. And then Jesus declares in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Woman, I am the Christ. Wow. She has to feel something like how I felt when my dad asked me to help him and we stood there loading shotgun shells and talking. She's having a conversation with the Messiah and he is listening and he knows all about her and her weaknesses and he still thought she was worthy enough, valuable enough, not only to get her a drink, him a drink of water, but to spend time with. Will you give me a drink of water? It's so brilliant and that it engages this woman with something she's surely qualified to do even if she feels unworthy, compassionate, because it puts her at ease. There's no demand or condemnation. And I'm sure in that society with five husbands and now a live-in, a woman found alone at the well, she's probably had to fend off much more adult questions and comments. But darn it, now their conversation gets interrupted because Jesus' disciples come back from their grocery run. And they are surprised to find Jesus talking with her because, hey, they're not Jesus. They're humans with all of our prejudice and baggage. And to them, she is just a Samaritan woman. But she is so excited about this whole event that she leaves her jar of water right there at the well, forgets to take it with her, goes back into town to tell everybody that she thinks she's found the Christ. Wow. In the span of one conversation, she's gone from a nobody to somebody important enough to talk with God. And it was so life-changing that she forgot what she was doing and went to tell everybody about him. When I was 30 years old, I had a similar experience. I wasn't at a well. I was sitting in a library cubicle trying to write a eulogy for my younger cousin when I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. He didn't ask me for a drink of water. He asked me to say a few words about love to remember my cousin who loved Jesus despite most of the rest of my family, including me, not loving Jesus. And that encounter was so life-changing that this, this unworthy woman has spent the rest of my life trying to tell other people about him. So before the woman and the townspeople can return to the well, the disciples try to give Jesus some of the food they went to collect. And so now Jesus is going to turn his attention away from the woman and to them. And he changes his metaphor from talking about water and living water to talking about food. It's the same idea. So don't get confused when you read this chapter, John chapter 4, for yourselves later. Okay? Jesus is still talking about a basic need, a sustenance. 
So they try to get him to eat. And he tells them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Wait a minute. Didn't he just send us into town to get food? Did we misunderstand? Does he have a granola bar hidden in his tunic? What is happening here? And they're wondering. But then Jesus continues, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food, the way I am sustained, is doing my Father's will, the work that he assigned to me. That's what satisfies me. Well, what was that work that God sent him to do? What is this food that satisfies Jesus? It's in the previous chapter. It's John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God sent his son into the world to save it. That's his assignment. That's his work. Whenever we read any part of the gospel, never lose focus on this one thing. Why is Jesus here? He's here to save us. And that work, saving us, saving our souls, helping us believe in him so that we can have eternal life, that is the food and drink that satisfies Jesus. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John never records that Jesus actually took a drink of water and he refused the food that the disciples brought to him but he was satisfied. Imagine this. One day, a woman went out to get water in the heat of the day, and she met a man who asked her a simple question. Will you give me a drink? And she found that he used that question to start a conversation that saved her soul. And that was the drink he was looking for. And what did this woman do? This woman whose soul was harvested directly by the Savior himself, she went and she planted seeds. She went to tell everybody about him. And John records that many believed because of her testimony and her urging that they come to meet Jesus for themselves, and they did. And Jesus said that would happen when she took a drink of living water. Remember, back in verse 14, the water I give will become in you a spring of water, and we all know that springs overflow. Will you give me a drink? That is not a throwaway question. It's a question with two meanings for us. Will we serve with Jesus? Will we help him? Will we come alongside? That's the first part. And will you satisfy me by believing in me, by becoming my follower, by allowing me to save your soul and complete the work that my father sent me to do? Jesus is thirsty but it's not for water. And he is hungry, but it's not for food. Jesus is thirsty and hungry for you, to get to know you, to spend eternity with you, you with all your baggage, sweaty, hot, and tired from this world and feeling like you would rather just stay out of sight. 
He's waiting for you. And how will you answer when he asks you, will you give me a drink? It's hard for me to come up with words to pray when I think about what God has done for us. But will you join me as I try this morning? God, it's overwhelming what you have done, that you have sent Jesus here looking for us, thirsty and hungry for us, on a mission to do your work, to save us. We can never say thank you enough. Never let us lose focus on why he is here. Never let us be distracted from that. Father, somebody here needs to meet with Jesus and he's waiting. Will you open their eyes to him? And for those of us who have taken a drink of living water, Lord, let that overflow within us to everyone around us. We give this prayer, this thanks, this praise to you, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.